Lord, we just ask you to be with us as we look at your word. We ask for your leading and guiding. Lord, for those that are sick in our, in our church, we ask that you just give them a touch of your healing hand and, and bring them to you in a strong way. And we ask that you show us what you'd have us see through this. In your son's name, amen. amen. Numbers chapter 12. This is an interesting story that we're going to come into. Remember, we just got done reading about the quail, the feeding of the people by the, the cloud of quail, uh, and the judgment for their greedy eating of it. And if you remember that we had that little story in there of Moses being really pressured with all the work that he's doing, and God says, pick out 70 people to be anointed, to take part of your anointing. So we're going to look at chapter 12. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Has not the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were on the, on the face of the earth. And the Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and, and unto Miriam, Come out, you three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Mir Miriam, and they both came forth. So we're going to look at this for a moment and start painting the picture of what we have here. Miriam and Aaron are the older siblings of Moses. Okay, remember, they're older than Moses. They're his brother and sister, and they're older than he is. And... We're going to see how they react with the new leadership coming in. Because remember, Miriam has been kind of a key person in Moses' life. He's the one that watched over the, 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 bush, the basket as it floated down the river and made sure that Pharaoh's daughter got it. And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter picked up the baby, she goes, you know, hey, I can go find a nurse for you. She also, in Exodus 15, verse 20 and 21 is the one who started praising God after the, after the crossing of the Red Sea. And she's called a prophetess. So she's definitely somebody who's been teaching, giving, speaking for God. And so she's had some, some measure of power. She is under her brother, which is probably galling to her because any, any older sibling does not like it when their younger brother or sister you know, does better than them or is promoted or you, know, you look at the problems Joseph had because his dad liked him best and he was the 11th child you know and there's you know 10 brothers above him and you know and he's and he's being raised up by his dad to be you know the number one you know number one child basically and his brothers didn't like it okay and he didn't help matters by repeating these nice dreams that they were going to bow down and worship him and all of that but but he was also his dad kept saying you know here you know you're going to you're going to be in charge we saw it with Esau and Jacob, where, where Esau is the older and Jacob is the one who it keeps getting all the notice. So we see this whole thing coming in. And Aaron, of course, is the high priest. Okay, religious As far as the religious order goes, there's nobody higher than Aaron. You've got Miriam, who's, who's doing some kind of teaching and prophesying. And then you've got Moses, who's in charge of all the people. All right, And so we see here that... They come and accuse and, and speak against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom who he had married, whom he had married. This Ethiopian the word Ethiopian here means Cushite. 
okay, and all of Africa and, and the lower part of the Arabian Peninsula is the children of Cush. And Cush, of course, is one of the three sons of Noah, okay. Uh, Ham, Sham, and Jap Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and Cush is part of Ham's generation uh, family. So here we have, he's married somebody that as far as the Jews are concerned, you're not supposed to. There's no rule against it, there's no law against it, but you're supposed to marry within, it, it, the best case would be another Jew, but at least somebody from Shem's descendants, not not Ham's descendants, okay? Uh, and so we have this whole problem there, and they're, and they're using this as an excuse to come against him. And this goes to show you that when somebody is wanting to go against leadership, it really doesn't matter whether they have real arguments or not. They just, sometimes people will come up against leaders for the, some of the dumbest reasons out there, and you're going, Really? Are you really wanting to talk bad about this leader because of you know, this? And you see this happening in churches sometimes when they do building, uh, redecorating programs, and, and all of a sudden you, got, you, know, you put a blue carpet in, and there's a group that wanted a brown carpet. And, you know, and they go against all the leadership. You know, Why did you put a blue carpet in? It should have been brown. You know, and, and all of a sudden you see this church being broken up, and you go, what a dumb reason for a church to break up. The color of a carpet is not that big a deal. Well, this is what we're seeing here. You know, Moses, you, you, married, you didn't marry a, an Israelite. You married somebody out of, the, out of the Cush, out of, out of Ham's family. And you shouldn't have done that. Okay, and this is their accusation. And we want to be very careful in our own, in our own set that we don't go against leadership especially for really dumb reasons. I mean, we're going to see that you don't want to do it at all, but I mean, if you, if you are going to go out and criticize a leader, make sure it's for a valid <laughs> biblical reason. And even then, you should only go to the leader themselves to, to attack, you know, to say this is what needs to be done. But we see them, they're coming against Moses, and their accusation is, you know, are you the only one God's talking to? <laughs> So we're starting to see this jealousy, okay? It started out with the accusation of, you know, you married, you married a Cushite. And this could be his original wife, uh, uh, or it could be that she died and he remarried. We don't know, because the Midianite would be part of that Cush family uh, as well. So we don't know if it's uh, his Zipporah or some other wife, there's controversy on whether, which way it is. But we see that after verse 1, they don't talk about this wife anymore. Okay? It, the, the wife is a red herring, you know, argument. You know, you, you married the wrong girl. But the real argument comes in verse 2. Hasn't God, has God only spoken to you, Moses? You know, Miriam says, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophetess. God has spoken through me. You know, here's the high priest. God, God obviously uses the high priest. And so the attack really is jealousy toward Moses. Okay, because you think about this. He just picked 70 people to get part of his anointing put on them. And Miriam and Aaron weren't part of the 70 elders. 
Okay, so there's a little bit of jealousy. They've just seen their power kind of diminished. And we see this oftentimes when churches are starting to grow and they start putting on new pastors or, or picking new people to run ministries and somebody is left out and they get their feelings hurt and they come against the church. And we're, this is what we're seeing here. Moses, you know, do you think you're the only one that God talks to? You know, who's, who's Moses? Oh, he's, you know, he's been complaining about God all the time. God, you know, give these people to somebody else. I don't want them. <laughs> you know, they're too much trouble. And his brother and sister come up against him and say, you know, who are you to be in charge? You know, who made you so special? <laughs> and you can just picture it. You can picture, you know, uh, you know Moses, you're, 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 you're the little brother. Who, you know, who, who put you in charge of all, all of this stuff? You know, why... Why, you know, why do you think you're the big shot? <laughs> and this is their attack. This is their attack. And then in the end of verse 2, it says, the Lord heard it. Okay? And we've talked a lot about let God be your defense. Moses is letting God be his defense. He never says a word in all of this attack. But God heard it. And... Uh, and he says, and it says, in the verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. So he, he was a humble person. Okay? He had never asked for all of this to be put on him. He was willing to give up all, you know, because remember when he was 40 years old, he could have had all of Egypt. He was in line to be the Pharaoh. He was being trained to be Pharaoh. And he killed a man and, and basically rejected the idea of being Pharaoh and was chased out of the country, out of Egypt for 40 years, where he did the wonderful job of being a shepherd out in the field with sheep. Probably enjoyed that job, being by himself, not having to worry about others. He just had to worry about some sheep. And then God <coughs> elevates him. You remember that how he did that. He saw the burning bush and God says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. And he goes, no way I'm going back to Egypt. I'm wanted for murder. Uh, if I go back there, they'll kill me. <laughs> and God says, no, you're going back. And we, you, know, you know the story how he gets sent back and how he delivers the people through the, by, by giving the 10 plagues, helping God get the 10 plagues to them. He announced them. God, God cursed them. And then he <coughs> is leading. He goes from rejecting leadership of, of Egypt to being in charge of sheep to leading 3.5 million people. And he never really wanted it. Uh, and you see this all through his, you know, I've talked about it being a game between him and God. And it kind of is. But at the same time, I think he's going, God, I really don't want to do this. You know, I don't want these people. They're yours. And God's saying, no, they're yours. And we've talked about how that was a kind of a game between, between Moses and God. You know, God's saying, Moses, these are your people. And he goes, uh-uh, they're not my people. I don't want them. They're your people. You took them out. And Moses and God had a very interesting relationship. The only other person in the Bible that seems to have the kind of relationship they did was Abraham, when Abraham was bargaining with God for the city of Lot. You know, God, would you destroy Lot if there were 50 righteous, 45, 40, 35, 30, you know, goes all the way down to 10, and he stops at 10. And we've talked about why did he stop at 10? He stopped at 10 because he figured that Lot was raising up righteous, righteous family. And you had Lot, his wife, at least two daughters that still lived with Lot and his wife. And he had sons-in-laws, which means he had two married daughters at least. And he had a son and a daughter-in-law. 
So there was 10 people. Abraham figured that his family, Lot's family was 10 minimum, because we don't know if sons meant just two or, or more. But he's going, Lot has 10 people in his family. Obviously, Lot has been teaching his family to be righteous. Nope, no such luck. He was, you know, when he went to try to get them to come out, they looked at him as if he was a madman, it says. You know, that he sported with them. And they had to be drug out. But Abraham had that same kind of you know, responses of talking with God in a very interactive back and forth. And Moses was that way. You know, Moses got to spend you know, 80 days on the mountaintop with God and talking with him. He got, you know, and remember he told God he wanted to see him, see what he went. God told him, well, you can't, see, you can't see my front, but I'll let you see my back. And who knows what he saw you know, when God let him see whatever was the backside or the minimized side of, of, of him. And, but Moses has a special relationship, and yet he stays humble. He stays humble, and it says he's the most humble. He's the most meek. He's not out there trying to, to take authority. When the people come to murmur against him, he's going, God, I don't know what we're going to do. You've got you've to do something. You've got to give them water. You've got to give them food. You, you know. And he keeps going to God because he knows that he can't do it. And here he is, he's, you know, in the previous chapter, he goes, God, I can't handle these people. They're way too much. And God says, okay, pick 70 men to help you. And then we see the response of Miriam and Moses to those 70 men saying, uh, well, who do you think you are? You've just diminished our authority. Uh, and he didn't diminish anything. They still have the same, same things they did, but there's other people doing things. And this, again, happens a lot. And I've seen it happen so many times where somebody... You start a new ministry and somebody gets mad because they feel like they've been slighted or something was taken out of their responsibility. And it's like, who are they to get that, you know, get blessed out of there? And who, you know, why didn't I get it? Well, you didn't get it because God didn't want you to get it, probably. <laughs> and, and it says in verse 4, And the Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses and Aaron and Miriam and says, Come, you three, out to the tabernacle. Okay? And remember, the tabernacle is what was built. It was where they worshipped. It's where God met with the congregation. It's where Aaron would be able to meet with God when he went in. He had to take once a year, he'd be taking in the offering into the mercy seat. And they had the table of showbread going on there. They had the altars for sacrifices. And so they're going down to this tabernacle. And the place where God said he was going to dwell and the Lord came down in a pillar of a cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called to Aaron and Miriam. Now, that would have been something very, you know, they have not taught, you know, we haven't seen a time when God has talked directly to them up to this point. But God comes down in a pillar of cloud and then he starts talking directly to Miriam and Aaron. Now, I don't know if they thought maybe they're going to get a blessing or get honored because of what they think they're doing. Who knows? Maybe they think they're in trouble. I don't know what, where their mind is at this point uh, because it doesn't tell us. <laughs> and we can't speculate on this. But by the same token, when you're doing wrong, God convicts and you know that you're doing wrong. So I have a feeling, my personal feeling is they know <laughs> that they're in trouble at this point. Okay, they've been called down, and, they, and I don't believe that they think for a moment that they're being called down 
to be elevated. Uh, if they are, they've really deceived themselves because they're coming against Moses. And, and he says in verse 6, he said, Hear now my words, and if, and if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in visions, and I will speak to him in dreams. All right, so he says, listen to my words. And he says, if there's a prophet amongst you, and, and here Miriam is, is a prophetess, it says so that at the beginning, it says that she's a prophetess. He says, if there's a prophet among you, I will be the one to let you know. <laughs> I'm going to let you know by visions and by, and by dreams what I want you to say. And that was the typical way that, that the prophet got their words. They, heard, they got them in visions and, prophet, and, and, and dreams. But God is saying, and I love this, if there be, <laughs> okay, you, you two think you're important. If you're important, I'll be the one that talks to you. And God says that a lot of times when people try to stand up and do their thing, they come out and they say, you know, look at me. And there's a lot of people who want that look at me. They want a title. They want a position. And one of the great things about titles and positions is if you really want a title and position, start going out and doing what it takes to get the title and position. When I was a manager, I had one person that really wanted to be a shift supervisor. And they go, and I go, well, you want to be a shift supervisor? Oh, yeah, well, show me that you can do it. And they go, no, I'm not going to do it until I get paid to do it. And I go, then you'll never be a shift supervisor because until I see that you can do it, I'm not going to promote you. And this is the way it works oftentimes in the church. We go out, do you want to be a teacher? Start teaching. Start teaching a Sunday school class. Start teaching a Bible study. Go out and start learning how to be a teacher. Find out, sit with a teacher and have them teach you how to, how to learn, how to study. You want to be, you know, uh, serving the body? Go out and start serving the body. Uh, I've had people that go, I want to be a deacon. I'm going, well, what do you think a deacon is? Well, there's somebody who's in charge. No, the deacon is one who serves the church. So when you find somebody who's serving the church, <laughs> You have a deacon, potential deacon. Uh, you know, you've got somebody who wants to be a pastor, but they don't want to teach. Well, that's going to be a hard job to do. If you don't want to teach and you're not going out and teaching, then you're never going to be lifted up. And this is important for us to understand. What is our gifts and calling by God? The best way to find out? Go out and start doing some things. Uh, if somebody has got the the ability to help people, it shows up real quick because they will help, they will be helping people. They will, they will help them get jobs done. They will help them get things finished. If there's a teacher, they will start teaching. They will start. This is, I've never had a problem becoming a teacher in any church that I've been in before I became a pastor because I took whatever jobs teaching needed to be done. And if there weren't any jobs to teach, I started a home Bible study and taught. Okay. Because I knew that I was a teacher. And we see this over and over. People sit down and wait to be asked to do things in a church. Well, what is God calling you to do? Go do it. Go do what he's asked you to do. And if it's a good church, then you'll be encouraged to continue doing what God has called you to do. And I've shared with you that, you know, the church that I went to back east, you know, there's you know, they had home Bible studies all over the place, but the one guy that went out there and he wanted to do a Bible study at the airport and everybody thought he was nuts. 
You know, why would you want to start a Bible study at an airport? How, you know, what, you know, but he kept coming back with people getting saved all the time at the airport at his Bible study. So we never know what God can do, how he can do it. We, we see people who are good at evangelism. They're good at talking to people, knocking on doors, inviting people to church, talking to them about God. Not everybody, we're all told to do it, but not everybody is really good at it. And there are a handful of people that are very good at evangelism. There are some people that are very good at teaching. There are some people that are very good at giving. Uh, they'll give away everything they own because they just want to give, give people, you know, they want to give. The shirt off their back and everything else. Uh. So we never know what it is. And here we've got Miriam and Aaron kind of standing before God. And he's saying, if, if there's a prophet, I'll let you know. I'll let them know what they're supposed to say. Verse 7. He says, my servant Moses is not so. Who is faithful in all my house? So he's saying, and uh, we're going to read, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches, in the, in the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Therefore, then, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Okay, he's saying, okay, if there's a prophet, I speak to them in visions and dreams, but with Moses, I talk to him face to face. Him and I just talk. I'm not, I'm not you know, because a vision and a dream is a one-way conversation. God's, God's given the information. But he's saying with, with Moses... We talk. We are face to face. He can he can talk back to me, and we go back to that whole gaming, that gaming thing going on that they do. They're they're back and forth. They're talking to one another, and it says, even apparently, or this literally means by sight directly. Okay, I directly speak it with him, not in dark speeches. He's not talking to him in riddles and. Enigmatic statements, or you know, hard to re hard to understand statements. He says, "When I speak to Moses, I tell him what I want him to know, without trying to wrap it up and hide it." And we see all through the scriptures, though some things are clean clear to us now as we look back on them. At the time they were given, they weren't all that clear. You know, uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to them. They said, okay, they go, we obviously understand the Messiah will be born in that little tiny town of Bethlehem. How, you know, how come, why, or not? You know, none of that made sense. Uh, much of the prophecies were wrapped up in, in a kind of a hiding, hiding place until they became fulfilled. And God says, I speak to Moses, and I just tell him straight up. I, I told him to go to Egypt. I told him to to make the water blood. I told him to hold his staff over and create, and the frogs would come out of the water, you know, and the lice and the flies and all the other stuff you know, that God told him directly. There was no, no dark clouds around it, no hidden messages. God said this, and he did. When Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am has sent, sent you. Okay, he didn't, he didn't give him a long-winded, he just gave him a straight answer. And then we look at this strange and wherefore you were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. God protects his leaders. And this is something the Bible is very, very clear on. God will protect his leaders. And if you dare to speak out against a leader, God will judge. 
And I will say that from what I've been able to see and we'll look at some of this, whether they're right or wrong, God will judge because they're his servants to discipline. In 1 Samuel 26, And we'll start in verse 5. And David arose and went to the place where Saul had pitched. And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of the host, and, and Saul lay in the trench. And the people pitched around about him. Then answered David unto Ahimelech and the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zipharai, the brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to, Saul, to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping in the trench, his spear stuck in the ground at his, at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay around about him. Then said Abishai to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray you, with a spear even to the earth at once, and I will not spite him a second time. And David said unto Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall smite him, and, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray you, take you now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water, and, and let us go. So David comes upon Saul. And remember, if you don't know the story, Saul's been chasing him all over the place trying to kill David. David has been anointed to be the next king by Samuel. And yet he will not reach out his hand and take the, the position because he says, Saul is God's anointed. God anointed him first. I will not be the one who touches Saul. And he says, God will do it. And you see that list. You know, maybe he'll just, maybe, he might die of old age. He might go to battle, but God will take him out when the time is right. And there's, Saul was being very wicked, you know, chasing David all over the place to try to kill him was not a good thing, okay? David's anointed, and yet he is going after David. 2 Samuel 1. Verses 14 and 16. Well, let's start at 13. And David said to the young man that told him, Whence art you? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and Amalekite. Let's set the stage here. Saul has been killed in battle. Okay? And this person's come to be a messenger to tell David that Saul died in battle. And he actually claims to be the one that killed him. And we'll see what David does to him in return. Uh, and David said unto him, How were you not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said to him, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him and he died. And David said unto him, Your blood be upon your head, for your, for your mouth has testified against you, saying that you have slain the Lord's anointed. Okay, so David disciplined. You know, this guy thought he was doing David a favor. You know, okay, David, you can be king now because, you know, I killed him, and the guy actually didn't kill him. He took credit for something he didn't do, and his reward was to die. Okay, But again, it just shows you in the Bible, 
God takes it very serious for leaders. He does not allow his leaders to be injured. And we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And we'll start at verse 18. Saying unto you, I will give the land of Canaan and lot of your inheritance. When you were but a few, even a few, and strangers in it, and when they went from nation to nation and from kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. He reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not my anointed, and to my prophets do no harm. So God protected the children of Israel as they wandered. wandered, the, wandered. He protected Moses, he protected the other leaders, and he said, don't touch the prophets. Okay, this is a, this is a theme all through the scriptures. In Jeremiah, we're told that, by God that he will deal with the false pastors, those pastors who aren't treating their people correctly. So people will go, and then whenever I have taught this in the past, before I became a pastor, people go, well, what about a pastor who's doing wrong? Well, you go to the pastor one-on-one -on -one and say, you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. If he doesn't listen, then you step back and you basically leave the church. Go find another church because God will take, or just wait for God to take the pastor out without saying anything because God will not allow a leader to stay forever when they're wrong. He took Saul out. Now it took him, he let Saul reign for a long time, but he eventually took Saul out. He's going, he took in the various Eli, who was the priest before Samuel, Eli and his sons were killed because his sons were disobedient and doing things wrong. And they were killed. And then Eli fell over backwards because of the news of his sons dying and broke his neck and died. <laughs> but God took him out too. Now Eli was a good prophet other than the fact that he couldn't train his kids upright, wouldn't discipline his kids. And so God killed his kids because, well, they were men by the time they were killed. And so we look at this. Ezekiel 28.14, we want to look at that for just a moment because this is a little different, little different story here. And we'll start at verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take this lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus says the Lord God, You seal up the sun full of wisdom and beauty, perfect in beauty. You have seen Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold. The workmanship of your timbrets and your pipes was prepared in you in the day you were created. Now it says that he's talking to the king of Tyre, but he's very clearly talking about Satan in this story in this uh, thing. So it says you were, you were the great one, you were full of wisdom, you were beautiful, you were in the Garden of Eden, you, you know, precious stones. It says that you know, his workmanship, the tim, tim, timbrits, tambourines, and pipes were prepared in you the day that you were created. Some people from that verse take it that Satan actually has 
musical instruments embedded into his body because he was the, the chief angel. He was the one that brought all the worship to God. Verse 14, you were, you were the anointed cherub that covereth. I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in all your ways from the day that you were created till the iniquity was found in your heart. By the multitude of your merchandise, you have filled your mist with violence and, and you have sinned. Therefore, I will cast you out as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy you. O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Lucifer or Satan when he was created was the chief angel. He was the anointed angel covered everything. Now I bring this up. We bring this one up because now we're going to go to Jude chapter, uh, verse, verse 9. Jude only has one, one chapter in it. In verse 9 it says, Let Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a, a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, from everything we can tell, Michael is the head angel at this point. We definitely know he's the warrior angel. Whenever, whenever you see him, he is in the midst of battle. So he, He's of, the, of a group of angels that are <coughs> warriors. But even when he fought with Lucifer for the body of Moses, he did not bring an accusation. Why? Because it says, touch not God's anointed. Lucifer was the anointed angel. He was the head angel. So Michael used the authority of God and said, the Lord rebuke you. Because Satan will not be finally judged until the white throne judgment when he stands before the world and the world sees him and they says, is this the man that, that brought us such terror? And they see the weak, shriveled up being that Lucifer has become over the years. And then Lucifer will be cast into hell for eternity and will be a prisoner there. Not, not the ruler like a lot of people think, but the prisoner of hell. And so we see this, this whole thing of when, when you come against God's anointed leaders, you put yourself in a dangerous place. When you come against his children, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place. Because God tells us that we're not to judge one another because we stand or fall before our master. God is our master. And we are to give grace to one another. We're to love one another. We're to build one another up. We are to edify. We might, and we can do some, you know, there, if you know somebody really well, you can, you can gently correct them because people need to be corrected. But you're not to judge them. And this is so important. When we judge somebody, we're putting ourselves in a great danger of taking the, the penalty for their judgment. God will say, okay, you think you're better than them? Let me just give you what they were supposed to have punishment for. And this is very serious. I have seen it happen so many times over my lifetime when somebody will attack, especially pastors. I, I know a man that attacked a pastor, and the pastor was a good man. The pastor was a really good man, a good teacher. He loved his, loved his church. But this man, for whatever reason, didn't like the pastor. And he kept speaking against the pastor, 
and myself and, and the head deacon went over to him and said, you have got to stop what you're doing. You cannot make accusations this way against the pastor. You cannot speak against the pastor. If you have problems, go to him individually and talk to him, but don't talk about him. Well, within the next two years, he got cancer. Two of his sons died. His wife divorced him. And, you know, his whole life fell apart. And I'm absolutely sure it was because he went against the pastor in the wrong ways. And I've seen it over and over where people have harmed God's children and then watched their whole life fall apart because God doesn't take it lightly. And this is why I keep telling everybody, we need to make sure that God is our defense because if he defends us, he will defend us. And I've said it over and over. If we want to defend ourselves, he'll let us defend ourselves and he'll just step back and say, okay, you go ahead and defend yourself and we'll usually make a mess out of it. But this is key. It is very, very serious to attack God's leaders, number one, or even his children. He does not hold back his judgment from that. And if you want to get yourself in serious trouble, start attacking other, other, other Christians and, 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 and pastors and teachers and, and see how fast you'll get your life totally, totally messed up. And this isn't just, I don't say this to say, you know, you know, treat me special or anything. It is just what God says. And it really isn't that hard to, to take and treat a, treat a pastor with honor. I mean, I've done that everywhere I've ever been. Every time, every place I've been, they've been pastor so-and-so. It's never, you know, it has not been, you know, hey, hey, bud, how are you doing? You know, it's, I may be friendly with them. I might be willing to do, you know, do activities with them, but they're still that honored position of they're slightly different. The same kind of mentality happens in the military. The enlisted do not get friendly and spend time with officers. You just don't do it. Because the officer is, you know, a higher position. He's to be respected. He's to be honored. Now, you could get together and do things every once in a while, but that honor had to always be there because of who he was. And it was the same with the non-commissioned officers, you know, the sergeants or the chiefs. You know, they had a slightly different... They interacted more with the low low-level enlisted, but they still had to keep themselves slightly aloof because they were in charge. And this is what God is saying. You're to be treated with honor. And we're to treat each other with honor. We're to love one another. We're to build each other up. Does it happen perfectly? No, because we're human. <laughs> you know, none of us is ever going to do it perfectly. But God is saying, learn to love one another. And here he's telling Aaron and Moses, why weren't you afraid to come against Moses? You know, I have this relationship with him and you weren't afraid to come and attack him? And this shows that this has always been there for God. His, his view of authority is totally different than our view. And then in verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Okay, God got mad, and, it just, and he just left. And probably good for them that he left, because otherwise they would have been killed, most likely, if he'd really stayed around. And verse 10, And when the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam be became leprous, white as snow, 
And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Now, we've talked about this whole thing of leprosy. It's a very contagious disease, and the result of being a leper was that you were cast out of the camp. So Miriam is going to go from being the prophetess, you know, kind of important because she's Moses' sister, has some authority as a prophetess, and she's going to be kicked out of the camp because she's, leper, because she's covered with leprosy. And this was, uh, this was miraculous because she wasn't leprous before, and all of a sudden she's covered. They just look over, and she's covered with leprosy. And that means her skin was flaking and, and peeling off and... and probably oozing even though it was brand new because God had given her the, the advanced state. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech you, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. All of a sudden, Aaron is starting to say, this is serious. We have gotten ourselves in trouble. And he's probably looking at, you know, uh, God's going to do this to Miriam. What, what is he going to do to me? And I think the only reason he was spared is because he was the high priest. And uh, you know, he says, I beseech you, Moses, I beseech you, uh, you know, don't lay this sin upon us. Like, like it's Moses' decision. You know, it's, uh, he's talking to Moses because Moses has this relationship with God that God had just told him about. <coughs> But he's, you know, don't do this. You know, we have done foolishly, or I love the way it really is in, in Hebrew. We have become fools. <laughs> okay. You know, we, we thought we were doing okay, but, uh, you know, boy, are we acting like fools, and, and we're in trouble. <laughs> and it says, don't, and wherein we have sinned. We have sinned. We have, we have not done the right things. Let her not be as the dead of whom the flesh is half consumed, when, when she comes out of her mother's womb. So he says, you know, this is serious. She's a leper. We've got to kick her out of the camp, Moses. And, this is, and kind of it's like, this is our sister. You know, you know come on, Moses. This is our sister. Let's, let's, not, let's not let her get kicked out of the camp. And it says, and Moses cried to the Lord. And this goes to show Moses' humility. He's just been attacked by his brother and sister. And yet he's going to call out to the Lord. Heal her now, O Lord, I beseech you. That's a very simple prayer. God, I am begging you, heal my sister. Uh, I'm not holding any malice to her. I'm, I'm not going to have a problem. You know, but please just heal her. And you can just hear him, hear him just wanting that. You know, this is my sister, God. You know, I know, I know that things haven't been done right, but God, you know, you just struck her, you can heal her. And God... And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. So this is kind of a very, this is a cultural reference. In the Middle East and, and much of Asia and, and the Far East, spitting is one of the most abhorrent things you can do to somebody. And to spit in somebody's face is terrible. And it's not a great thing even in our society, but it is really bad in their society. And it says, if her father had just spit in her face, you know, she would have been put away for seven days unclean, you know, and needed to be. And so we're going to do the same thing. She has to be put out of the camp. And this goes back to the laws of the leper. 
where you came in, you, you, you saw a spot on your arm, you went into the priest, the priest looked at it, and if, he, if it wasn't a boil or something and it looked like it might be leprosy, you were put away for seven days and then you came back and you were checked. If it was gone, you were okay. If it was the same size, you were okay. If it was bigger, they put you away for another seven days. And then you came back and if it had gotten bigger still, then you were kicked out of the camp. If it was getting smaller, it was just some kind of in, you know, infectious rash or something and was going away. So she is to be put out of the camp for seven days. And as far as she knows, and as far as Aaron knows, this may be permanent, okay? She's going out as a leper. She has to yell unclean to anybody that might come anywhere near her. She's gonna live amongst the other lepers that are around the camp. And she cannot get, you gotta think, we've talked about this, for the leper, this was a tough life. There was no food out there. They might get some scraps from wherever dump yard there was. In this case, she could pick up the manna because the manna was laying around. But it was harder to get your food. It was harder to get your water. You didn't have the protection from, from animals that would come around the camp, and you wouldn't have protection from marauders that came around the camp because you were outside the camp. You were unprotected. And verse 15, And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till, <coughs> till Miriam was brought in. Okay, basically Moses said, we're not moving until she's back in the camp. Okay, so they, didn't, they did not move and she had to put out her, go through her quarantine. And afterward, the people were removed from Hazeroth and pitched in the wilderness of Panram. So they get, when she was back in, she got healed after seven days and came back into the camp. And I'm sure that she was very humbled after this and did not attack anymore. She was basically put in, you know, in her place by God. And this shows God's grace, because God could have said, no, she went against you, I'm not, I'm not healing her. And yet for Moses' sake and his prayer, he said, okay, I will bring her back. And God does this a lot of times for us, the power of our prayers and our requests. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. And he says that we, anything, when we are asking according to God's will, we'll get what we ask for. That doesn't mean we can go wild and just ask for everything and God's going to give us. No, it's according to his will. What does he want us to do And we pray that way? We get it. The power of prayer is so important. God wants us praying for one another. He wants us lifting up. And it's so amazing. I've seen so many prayers answered in my lifetime. It's not even, not even funny to see the prayers when... You know, he'll take relationships that are totally falling apart, and when they pray, when they start praying, they will be repaired. We will see mighty, miraculous workings come out from God just because of prayer. We tend to think of prayer as a last resort. You know, God, uh, whatever, you know, I've tried everything I can do, so I guess I'll go ahead and turn to you. Now, God doesn't want us to be praying that way. We need to be very proactive in our prayers and lifting people up, saying, God, I care about this person. I want to see them come to you. And then God will show us how we can minister to them. He'll bring the right people into their paths. And we see this over and over through prayer. We see the people in, in uh, when Assyria was attacking them and they prayed, they had them surrounded and they just started praying to God and God killed, 
killed 170,000 of them in one night. Uh, you know, God did. They didn't go to battle. They just came out, and there's dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> lots of food, lots of, lots of spoil. It said it took them a week to get all the spoils you know, because so many people had just been killed that quick. God can do mighty things. You have Elijah on the mountaintop with the army around him getting ready to sent there to arrest him and his servant all panicking. And he says, God, open his eyes so he can see that those that are with us are, are more than those that are against us. And circling the army that had them circled was the angels circling the army. Okay? And it only takes one angel to kill 170,000, so who, who knows what, what an, angel, an army that large would do? Uh, God's answers for prayer. We see miraculous prayers being answered. Peter's arrested. The church goes into prayer. An angel of the Lord comes into the jail and says, Peter, get up. Walks him out of the prison. Sends him back to the church. Just because the people are praying. And the people didn't even believe in their prayers because when Peter goes knocking at the door, they're going, oh, can't be him. He's in prison. Okay. You know, God let, let Peter out of prison. Now it can't be him at the door. <coughs> Even when we pray without absolute confidence that God will answer, he may still answer our prayers because he wants to show us how powerful he is. He wants to show us that he cares for us. He wants to show us that he'll provide for us. And the greatest thing is when, when you're walking with God and he is providing. And it's a miraculous thing that you don't know where the money's coming from or the provision's coming from, and all of a sudden, there it is. It's just there. The job is needed, and all of a sudden, there's a job. The food is needed, and there's the food. You know, you never know what it is that God is going to do. And yet, he's right there. You know, he's very rarely early, but he's never late. He's always on time. And God's answer sometimes is so scary to be dependent upon him because, believe me, over the last three years with my finances, it's like, okay, God, I need this bill to be paid. It's due in... <laughs> It's due in 24 hours, and, and that's when the money would usually come in. It usually did not come in two and three weeks early. It would come in on time. And God will do this for us. When we start praying for people, are we praying for people to get saved? Or are we trying just to do the best we can do to get them saved? Or are we spending time on our knees saying, God, this person needs to, needs to know you. Bring the right people in to their presence so they can hear the gospel message. Now you may be the one that's used for it or you may not be the one that's used for it, but God will work out these things. Salvation. We need to find people that we know need to be saved and pray for them. Pray for them. And it doesn't mean that we keep our mouth shut when the opportunity comes to talk to them, but we need to be praying for them. God arrange things so that they'll be ready to hear the message. Because who knows what it'll take to get them, get them the, the message through to them. They might turn, turn on a radio in a car and hear the gospel message. You know, they, they may get a track in the mail and, and read it and get saved. You, know, you may be the one that gets to talk to them and save them. We don't know. But it starts with prayer. It always starts with prayer. God, help this person. God, help us with this. Help the church with this. Help this person. Help me with this, you know, whatever it might be. But it starts with prayer and the power of prayer. God can do miraculous things when we just put him 
on them. And it's, it's kind of unfair to the person that when God gets on them, he, they've got a, they've got a uh, dog that doesn't let go. <laughs> God doesn't let go. He will just sit there and he'll keep hounding them and hound them. I just learned that if you look for the good in somebody, you'll find it. But if you look for the bad in someone, you'll find that too because no, they're human. You'll find whatever you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah, so and it's, it's a hard thing to learn, but I've yes. learned. And we've said the same thing Some about churches. For the negative, you find the positive. Look for the positive, you find it. And we've said the same thing about churches. If you're looking for a church and you're looking for all the bad in a church, you're going to find it. Because every church is made up of people. There are bad things in every church and there are good things in every church. Every person has good and bad in them. Even a really, really bad person has some little streak of good in them. And... We need to be able to remember this. And this is why I say over and over to people, I am never surprised when people do bad things because we're all sinners. I am not surprised when Christians do bad things because Christians are all sinners. Now, there are some surprises when somebody's grown enough and they start living a godly life, you know. But even then, I expect them to fall once in a while too. So when they fall and, and do something bad and, and hurtful, it doesn't shock me. Don't judge. And I don't judge them. We want to give them give grace. Them yeah. We give them grace. We give them love. Because one of the most important things is the old adage, you know, you don't know what they're gone through till you've walked a mile in their shoes. Who knows what brought them to the place where they fell? You might have fallen years before they did under the same pressure. And this is really true when you watch a leader, one of the Christian leaders fall, an evangelist or anybody, when they f sin and get really shown up for what they've done, you still don't want to judge them and criticize them because, man, you know, the attacks they had from Satan, who knows how much you could have taken. You, know, you might have fallen a decade ahead of them because of what they were going through, and they managed to go for a long time. Every one of us has weaknesses that Satan can get into if we don't truly trust God at every point in our walk. And none of us will ever truly trust God at every point in our walk. We will have places where he will get to us. And this is why it's important. Prayer, love, grace. Grace is the most powerful tool we have to win people. When we treat them with love and graciousness, when they know they deserve discipline and punishment. Miriam is going to see much grace here. You know, she's going to spend seven days outside the camp, but after that, she's going to know this is God's grace. <clears throat> he could have left me out here. Moses prayed for me. This is God's grace. And what will change lives? Grace. L laws and rules and, and, and all of that doesn't change people, you know, in the long run. It might get a little short-term change, but God's grace, because God's grace tells people, you don't deserve this, and they know they don't deserve it, <clears throat> and yet they get blessed. And we always want to keep this in mind. I always want God's grace. I don't want what I deserve, because if I did that, I'd be in hell. If I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell, I'd be dead, I'd be gone. God's grace allows me to be blessed. His grace gives us all spiritual blessings. His grace gives us peace that passes understanding. His grace allows Jesus to live in us, 
to give us the power to walk spiritual life. His grace gives us love for other people. And we give that grace to other people. And sometimes grace can make some people angry too because they know they deserve, deserve to be in trouble and they're going, you know, they're just waiting. They're waiting. When, when, when's the ax going to fall? You know, I'm, you know I, I deserve it. And, you're, and, you, and, and they're waiting for it. And they're going, no, God is just teaching us to love you. You're just to be loved. And too many times there'll be this attack on people. Well, they deserve it. Well, they probably did deserve the attack, but God says, give them grace. Love them. Give them grace because that's what he's given us. And this is what we need to do within the, within the body. That doesn't mean we allow ourselves to be taken advantage of and, you know, and all of that. But by the same token, we're to give them every opportunity to be loved. And we pray for them. And we watch what God does in their life. We watch what God does to touch them. How God's grace will grab hold of them. When they know that they deserve to have been, to, you know, they literally deserve to have been punished. And we don't do it. Because we forbear. We give up our right to demand their punishment. And they look at that and they go, okay, this is what it means to be Christian. This is what it means to not be of this world. And we as Christians are not of this world. We are to act different. We're to think different. The worst example of a Christian is one who looks and acts just like the world. And I'm not saying they aren't Christian. I have problems with them because they're still, act, you know, they're still the world. But if they're just as angry, just as bitter, just as foul-mouthed, just as, as sinful as the world, the world looks at them and says, well, why do I want to be a Christian? They're just like me. And this is why grace is so important. When, when you, somebody hurts you and you don't strike out at them and you don't demand punishment for them, they look at you and you're going, something's weird about this person. And that's usually where they start at. You're weird. And we are as far as they're concerned. We are weird. But they start looking at it and they find out, this is real. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know why they're doing it. But they're not like the rest of the world. And that is when God's spirit starts drawing them in and we become fishers of men. And say, come on, <laughs> come and get to know God. Come and get to know how this happens. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We ask that you always be with us and guide us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.